Good morning. If you would, um, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. But before we begin, I want a short announcement. Um, we need volunteers for our three and four year olds during corporate service. Um, if we could get some of you to volunteer and kind of rotate during service, so you're not in here, you won't be serving every Sunday, but um, you go on a rotation, it would help greatly to be able to accommodate um, those that are ministering to your children um, ages three and four years um, during the corporate time worship. So you can sign up out there in the foyer or the lobby, whatever you want to call it. We'll call it the foyer. Sounds better. Amen? Thank you. Well, open, if you will, to Romans uh, 1. We'll look together this morning at verses 1 through 7. The book of Romans. We're going to look this morning at Paul's greeting. The opening greeting, first seven verses, the Word of God reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may your spirit illumine our hearts and our minds that we might know your word understand it more deeply and to fall under the authority of its commandments. May we hear from you and be given feet that are quick to obey for the namesake of your son and your glory in all things we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, the book of Romans, as you most likely know, is a book, a letter, an epistle that God has used greatly over the course of church history. And he has used it to infiltrate the minds of his very own people. Take, for instance, uh, Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century, professor and profound philosopher. But in addition to that, he was also a very immoral man. And one day, sitting in a garden... The prayers of his mother, Monica, were answered, who had been praying diligently for the salvation of her son. And on that day, he heard the voice of a child saying, Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. And when he retired to his cottage, he picked up a Bible and began reading in Romans chapter 13, which says... Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This immoral man, Augustine of Hippo, was profoundly converted on that day and he became a committed defender of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrines of grace um, during the great Pelagian controversy of the 4th century. Romans was used by the Holy Spirit to kickstart this man's heart to proclaim this glorious truth. And then later, of course, in the 16th century, a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther who was appointed professor of theology at the uh, uh, City University in Wittenberg in 1515. When he arrived 
at the book of Romans, and he read chapter 1, verse 17, which reads that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, at this point in time, this was a man who was wrestling with his own conscience. And as he did, the idea of the justice of God caused him to begin to fight with God. He began to fight with God. He began to hate God. Because he couldn't produce the righteousness that God required in order to be saved. Martin Luther. But when he discovered that God doesn't require man to be righteous in and of himself in order to be saved, but that he gives righteousness to man by faith, that eternal life comes by faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the rest is history. And that truth was the spark that became the firestorm of the Reformation. Luther would later refer to Romans as the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. John Calvin added, if we understand it, Paul's epistle to the Romans, we have an open door to all the treasures of Scripture. William Tyndale, the father of the English Bible, described Romans as the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament a light and a way in unto the whole of Scripture. Romans teaches us that Jesus alone saves sinners. And not only that, but Romans also shows us how he saves sinners. He saves, and Romans declares how he saves. So are you ready for the journey, the book of Romans? Good. Now, there is then, of course, a great emphasis placed on the book of Romans in the history of the church. So as we study this glorious epistle, my hope is that it will forever challenge and transform your understanding of Christ, the Christian faith, and the Christian life. That's my hope. That's my prayer for you. And that is my hope and my prayer for me. Now, the subject of Paul's epistle to the Romans is none other than God himself. The overarching theme is the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of sinners. And his main argument throughout this epistle is that God's salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But this morning we look at Paul's greeting. It's the longest greeting of all his epistles. We'll look at the first seven verses. And we'll look at this passage in three parts this morning. Verse 1, we see the messenger, the messenger of the gospel, who is none other than the Apostle Paul, who will declare the authority of the gospel and his call as an apostle of the gospel. And then he'll proceed to declare the nature of the gospel, that it's rooted in the Old Testament, that it is, of course, Christ-centered, And then he continues to describe the essential result of the gospel. Who we are and who and what we are for as gospel recipients. So first, it's the messenger of the gospel. Secondly, the message of the gospel. And thirdly, the manifestation or the result of the gospel in those that are Christ by way of the gospel. So Paul here, he begins by declaring the authority of the gospel and his call by God to proclaim this eternal and glorious truth. And first, notice in verse 1, Paul opens up by introducing himself to these Roman Christians. He's telling them that his ministry is from God. He's telling them that his position is from God. Now there's three things to see in this short verse. Number one is that he is a servant of Messiah. That's who he is. That's who he is. Paul says, notice, I am a servant of Christ. Servant comes from the word doulos, which is slave. I am a slave of Christ. I'm not here, as it were, to lord it over you, Paul's saying, but I'm a slave 
of Jesus Christ, Messiah. I'm a servant. He is my master. So Paul, quite simply, introduces himself, introduces himself to the Romans as a slave of Jesus Christ. But then secondly, also very important, he balances out the slave aspect with this announcement because he goes on to say not only is he a slave, but he's also an apostle. That God has transformed him from an opponent to an apostle. An opponent of Christ to an apostle of Christ. And beloved, he has graced us, every one of us, because every one of us, at one time or another, were an opponent of Christ. And now, we're ambassadors for Christ. And the only reason you're here this morning is that God has granted you the ability to repent and believe. Do you, do you understand that? Paul's repentance was granted by God, just like every other believer. 2 Timothy chapter 2 Paul says to Timothy that God may perhaps grant them, context those in opposition, what? That God might grant them what? Repentance. Where does repentance come from? From God. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. And that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, after Paul's conversion, who's known as Saul, when other believers had gathered around him, they were very weary of Saul of Tarsus. They were afraid of Saul of Tarsus. So they were hesitant to welcome him, welcome him into the community of believers. But it was the Lord himself who said to one Ananias, go to him, pray for him, because I must show him the things that he must suffer for what? For my sake. He's a chosen vessel of mine. A chosen vessel vessel. So from the very beginning of his conversion, Paul was called by the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ to be an authoritative messenger and representative of Almighty God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the messenger. Thirdly, he says, I'm set apart for the gospel. In other words, I've been invested with the gospel office. An apostle, meaning that Paul's being set apart here of the gospel of God meant that everything that was contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ had to be stripped away from Paul. Everything. This is quite a call. Whereas, on the other hand, everything favorable to the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ had to be cultivated and preserved by the providential hand and grace of God. A stripping away and a pouring forth of grace that would enable this man, a slave of Christ, to be a bold proclaimer of Christ, one who was first in opposition against Christ, is now an apostle and an ambassador for Christ. And God will provide what he needs to carry out this office. Paul, as you know, was um, originally set apart as a Pharisee. Not by God, but by his parents by the uh, professors who had great influence in his life. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul said, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now think about this for a moment. When the kingdom split centuries earlier, Uh, After Solomon's death, only the tribes of Benjamin and Judah remained faithful to David's dynasty. So this then was his bragging right. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And in addition to that, beloved, Paul, this Jew, was also a Roman citizen by birth. Which means that someone in his family who preceded him had great influence among the Roman magistrates of the day, which granted his family Roman citizenship. So here is one, born a Jew, set apart to be a Pharisee, was also a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were exempt from being scourged. They were exempt from being chained without a trial. They were exempt from being crucified with the exception of treason. 
No Roman was crucified on a Roman cross. So Paul would go on to use, you see, his Roman citizenship as a tool to get him in front of Caesar. To do what? To proclaim his call, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Paul was eventually chained to a Roman guard after his trial, he saw it as nothing else, or nothing less, I should say, than an opportunity to preach. In all things, he said, I am content. Whatever state I am in, Paul would say, I am content. I realize that God is sovereign. I realize he's in providential control of my life. So wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whether I have much or have little, I am content. I am here to proclaim his truth. That's what I was born to do and enabled to do. This is the slave who is the apostle. Now, Paul also received um, the finest education possible. Tarsus, where he was raised, the university system was paralleled only to that of Rome. And in Acts 22, Paul speaks about the time he spent in Jerusalem also as a student of the celebrated Rabbi Gamaliel. So knowing well both uh, the Greek and Hebrew world, God in his providence would call this man to intersect both the Roman and Jewish world with his gospel. You see the providence of God? He prepared this man for this role. He would have status with the Roman world, influence and credibility with the Hebrew world, called by God, prepared, ordained by God for his own evangelistic purposes. He was named after the king, the first king of Israel, Saul. So by lineage, being of the tribe of Benjamin, you can imagine his parents had great expectations for their kid here. He's born on the inside track. You ever met anybody born on the inside track? They have all this opportunity, all of this influence, all of these connections, and here's the man. Here's the man, Saul of Tarsus. But he would become, as he would mature, an antagonist against the church of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 5, Paul said this, I was born a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In Acts 22, when he stands before the people, when he said this, he said, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Recorded in Acts 7. Meaning that this man had influence as a leader. You ever met people with leadership ability? They have influence. Whether they choose to do good or choose to do bad, they have the ability to influence people. You're not a leader unless somebody's following you, by the way. You look back and nobody's following you. What kind of leader are you? Not everyone's called to certain roles of leadership. Nevertheless, this was a man who had leadership qualities, both for the bad and for the good. And God broke him of his rebellion and made him a leader of the gospel, Christ's gospel. That's the messenger. He wrote to the church of Galatia. He said this, chapter 1, verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, fathers. In other words, he was given to Jewish loyalty with zealousness to protect man-made orthodoxy. Zealous, which naturally, you see, resulted in persecuting those of the way. The first century term for Christians, the church. Here's the man. Here's the messenger. And eventually he would serve as a kind of a district attorney, a spiritual district attorney, if you will. And uh, he, he would commence to be on the hot pursuit of professing Christians. He would come with letters in hand to arrest anyone who claimed to be of the way and to jail them or kill them. 
you look at Acts 9, notice, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who seeks who? Who's seeking who in this account? Is Saul seeking God, or is God seeking Saul? God is seeking Saul, and for whom he seeks, he shall find. As ordained by God. God will call this man, disciple by the name of Ananias. In verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. He said, Rise, go to the street called Straight. There's a chosen vessel of mine. He's praying there, and I want you to go in and pray for him. And he did. So Paul here, he sees his life being stripped of any and all things contrary to the truth of God. Philippians 3, 7, Paul said this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Later on in his ministry, he is uh, declaring the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians In chapter 15, in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Do you see that? According to what? Scriptures, which means the Old Testament. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 3 and verse 4 right there provides the shortest yet most concise gospel proclamation there is. It's right there in a nutshell, verse 3 and 4. Paul continues. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was where? In me. The grace of God. I am what I am by his grace, and undeservingly so, beloved. That's his statement. He has made me, his persecutor, his slave his apostle, his messenger. The Lord said to Ananias when he was converted, Paul was converted, he said, go, he is a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my own name. A ministry to fellow Jews, a ministry to the Gentile world, a ministry to kings. He would stand before Agrippa. He would stand before Caesar. He would stand before governors, men like Felix, proclaiming the same message to those chained to him, Roman guards, the same message. To peasants, the same message, the gospel. So he's going to lead this westward expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond into what is known as Great Britain today. By the influence of Paul and the discipleship of Paul, the gospel will go round the world. But before he actually arrives in Rome, beloved, he writes them a letter. And it declares the message of the gospel. So there's your messenger. And now we'll go and look at the message of the gospel written to the church of Rome in anywhere from 54 to 58 A.D. 
And this letter begins with the writer, none other than Paul. And uh, if you're going to get a long letter, it's good to know who it's from, and you don't want to wait until the end of the letter to see love so-and-so. Paul starts, it's Paul, it's me. I'm writing to you, Church of Rome. The letter's not about Paul. It's never about Paul. The letter is about Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear that throughout his ministry, I am irrelevant, Christ is supreme. For me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Is gain. That's Paul's perspective. Christ is my all in all. So here you have a slave of Christ, an apostle of Christ, rightly understanding his role, rightly understanding his position, all of which comes from Christ. He's claiming to direct these people, to proclaim these people as a messenger from Jesus himself. This is God's word for you. Church of Rome, I'm speaking to you, I'm writing to you the word of God. It's just coming through my pen. That's all this is. This is his word. He wants this church in Rome, he wants you, he wants me to comprehend that his message has consequences for the whole of your life. The whole of our lives, the way you think, the way you live, the place where you spend eternity. This is what he declares. Paul is saying emphatically here, this is God's message for you. The line is drawn. There's one way, there's one Lord, there's one hope, there's one way of salvation. This is it, and it must be embraced. It doesn't matter what you think. If you think there's more than one way to God, I'm telling you, he's the only way. This is truth. That's what he's declaring. This is truth. And you, 2,000 years later, are a recipient of the same message, you see. And as you're going to see, you had nothing to do with it preordained by God, calling you unto himself. So the gospel message that Paul preaches here, the emphasis is one of authority. This is an authoritative message. Now he continues, notice by stating the nature of the gospel. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It's Christ-centered. Notice, first of all, verse 2, the gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the New Covenant presentation of God's grace in Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of what God already set forth through the prophets of the Old Testament. It's concise. So he says to these these churches, this church in Rome, that God has a plan that goes out to the people of the nations. Verse 6. So Gentile Christians, you can't just ignore the Old Testament, in other words, beloved. If you really want to see the divine plan of God, you have to go to the scriptures of the Jews that was given to the Jews, set apart by God. So Isaiah and Zechariah, he says to these Gentile believers, are just as pertinent, just as important in knowing God's plan of salvation as is my gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel that I'm preaching you to you is deeply rooted in the Jewish scriptures. All of whom pointed to Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, who is Christos. He's the Christ. That's not his name. Jesus Christ isn't his last name. It's, these are his titles. Here it is. Yeshua, Savior, Joshua, Yeshua, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah. That's who he's proclaiming. So to speak of Jesus Christ is to speak of the incarnate Son of God. He is the God-man. That is who Paul is declaring here. Verse 3, he goes on to say the gospel is supremely about God. It's about his redemptive plan revealed through the prophets. A declaration that Christ Jesus is none other than the only begotten Son of God. That's his message. The Christ Son of God. Now, the genealogy of the Messiah was rooted also in the Davidic hope. Through the line of David would come Messiah, and that's the emphasis which he makes here. He drives this home. In verse 4, Paul speaks of Christ's exaltation. 
He was revealed as who he claimed to be by way of the resurrection. His person, his work were all validated by the resurrection, beloved. I've said it a hundred times, if it weren't for the resurrection, we wouldn't be here, amen? We'd have no reason to be here because we would have no hope. The ministry of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the power of Christ, the declarative truth of Christ, um, feeding multitudes, raising people from the dead would mean nothing were it not for the resurrection. His ministry, his personhood, his power, his sonship were all validated by way of the resurrection from the dead. Christ crucified, buried, and raised up the third day. So it's the resurrection of Jesus, you see, that declares to all people of all times in all places that he is Lord, whether they accept it or not. Whether they accept it is irrelevant to the reality of the resurrection from the dead. We have a calendar based on his birth, validated by his resurrection. It's a great ministry tool, by the way, for people who deny Christ. Say, what's the date today? It's what is ever this is, February whatever. But what year? What do you mean what year? It's 2012. 2012 years after what? Open door. After the birth of the one who declared to be the very fulfillment of all scripture. Jesus, Yeshua, the anointed one, Messiah, Christos, the Christ. Now he made some heavy proclamations. You just start there. He declared to be the one and the only son of God, and you just go on down the line. He said that he would be delivered in the hands of man. He said, although no man takes my life, I deliver, I allow myself to be delivered. I lay my life down. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up again. That's where we start. And Paul says, he called me into service to bear testimony and witness of this truth to Gentiles, all the nations. This gospel truth. So Paul loads and shoots the the gospel shotgun barrel in the first, notice this, the first four verses of his letter to the church at Rome. That's heavy. Right to the point, this brother. You know, you ask someone, what is the gospel? Many people will say, well, you repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. That's the result of the gospel. To repent and believe is the result of the gospel. The gospel is, it goes back to the bad news first, because gospel means good news. The bad news is that because of Adam's original rebellion, you naturally share in his spiritual DNA. That you're a sinner by nature. And that you stand under the wrath and judgment of God for your rebellion in word, action, and thought. Your thought life, subject to the justice of God. So, the natural consequence of all that is that you and I deserve eternal condemnation, eternal punishment. But, God, in his mercy and his grace, sent his son to live the perfect life in your place, lay down his life in your place for all who believe, raising from the dead, victoriously validating that work on your behalf. Therefore, to repent and believe grants you eternal life by faith. That's the gospel. Repenting and believing is in response to the gospel. So the gospel starts with who? Does it start with you? No, it starts with God according to the scriptures, going way back. The gospel starts with God. And until we understand that the gospel is about God and his initiating work, we will not understand the gospel. We can't understand the gospel. This is his work. So Paul begins by saying the gospel of who? God concerning his son. The gospel of God concerning his son. He is our God. He is our Lord. He is our master. He's the one that called me into service. He's the one that knocked me down and blinded me for three days. And then I was taken by the hand into Damascus. And he sent another messenger to tell me, to pray for me. And then God said, I'm going to show you what you must suffer for my name. That's who I'm talking about. I'm his slave. I'm his apostle. It's Jesus Christ. It's his truth declared. And I'm going to declare it to the nations, verse 5. 
an apostle to the nations, to the Gentile world. This is no new plan, amen? This is not God's plan B. The point is, this is God's plan from the beginning, according to the prophets. Because through Abraham's seed, what was the promise? All the nations of the world will be blessed. God never had only a plan for Jews, beloved. They were the mechanism for which Messiah, the the entity, the nation, a people from which Messiah would come through according to the Davidic line. And the promise of hope was for the world. All nations of the world. The seed of Abraham, the unique seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. The ethnic seed is Israel. The spiritual seed is all who believe and trust in the unique seed. That's always been the plan. Rooted in the Old Testament. That's his redemptive work. That's his redemptive plan. Revealed, made manifest, secured in Christ alone. And through him we've received grace and apostleship, Paul says. So the Old Testament, beloved, is the very foundation of our Christianity. Defining for us, it's not about what we do, but about what he has done for us. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't one of many options. There's not one of many ways to God. The gospel is not a hump, is not a mechanism to get you over the humps or difficulties of life. The gospel is not for only the weak-minded because it's the strong who can rest in their own laurels. No, the gospel's for all nations because all nations are full of what? Sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Every man and woman will die because of sin. Whitney Houston just died yesterday. And I'm a fan. And I happen to know the guy who was her road manager early on in her career. And she was a devout Christian. Devout. He used to tell me stories that what she would require of the road crew, that they couldn't live like rock stars and all the shenanigans. And she just kind of went downhill. Well, if she's in Christ, she's in Christ. And the Lord just took her home. I don't know her heart. You don't know her heart. But I know the power of the gospel. We know the disciplining hand of God. Amen? The gospel goes out to all nations. On the other hand, speaking of death, Christopher Hutchins, um, author and journalist, uh, known as one of the world's most ardent, ardent atheists, just died in December. And uh, after a long battle with cancer as he was suffering, he, he asked Christians not to pray for him. He said, however, if it makes you feel better, go ahead and pray for me. But it's, re- he's recorded, it's reported that he said this. He warned against any claims that he might have a deathbed conversion. He wrote, and I quote, Suppose I ditch the principles I've held for a lifetime in the hope of gaining favor at the last minute. I hope and trust that no serious person would be at all impressed by such hucksterism, end quote. He told others that if such reports did emerge, they should be attributed to the influence of drugs and the loss of my mental faculties. I will tell you one thing. Christopher Hutchins is no longer an atheist. Christopher Hutchins at this moment believes Jesus Christ is Lord, whether he's believing it in hell or whether God did grace him on his deathbed in spite of himself and he's in heaven. He believes. So because sinners occupy all nations, the gospel begins and ends with God Not with what people think, not with what people feel, not with what people choose to do or not to do or refuse to think about God. The gospel goes to all nations because all nations are filled with sinners. And I'll tell you what, it's summed up in Romans 11.36. For of him and through him and to him are all things, including repentance, including forgiveness, including the gospel, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're a recipient of grace. Amen? Grace. Unmerited favor. That's the message of the gospel. Thirdly, the manifestation of the gospel. The result of the gospel. 
the end of verse 5 and following, Paul shows us the fundamental results of the gospel, who we are, what we are for. The gospel isn't something that we simply add to our lives, beloved. Amen? It consumes our lives. These Roman Christians, as well as all other Christians, need to know what the gospel does for us. And there's four things to look at as we close in this last point. Notice first, Paul draws attention to the purpose of his apostolic ministry, and it's to bring about what? Let's go, don't be afraid of the word, let's say it. To bring about what? Obedience. That's like a dirty word in Christian community these days. Paul saw his calling as calling in men and women to submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. A submission that begins at conversion and grows deeper as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Obedience involves faith. Faith involves obedience. They're joined at the hip, beloved. I don't know how many times when I say faith in Jesus means submitting to Jesus, that somebody cries out, you preach sanctification by works. Wrong. It's justification by faith alone and Christ alone according to his grace alone. And when one is given the regenerating power and grace of God in life, they change. Period. But just when I think I'm the only guy that hears such nonsense, I read somebody like the late, great James Boyce, who's with our dear Lord, that great scholar and pastor who wrote this, quote, It is a puzzle to me that whenever I write about the lordship of Jesus Christ, stressing that one must follow Jesus and submit to him to be a Christian, some people always object that an emphasis like this destroys the gospel. If Jesus must be Lord, then salvation cannot be simple faith, they argue. If we insist that one must follow Christ, we must be mingling works with faith as a means of salvation, which they say is another gospel. Boyce goes on to say, look, this is what they say. No matter what I show, what true biblical faith is, no matter that I explain how obedience and faith both necessarily follow from regeneration. I suppose Paul had the same problem too, if for no other reason that than that the human mind seems to work much the same way in all people. I believe Paul had these difficulties because of the way he develops his thoughts in the opening verses of Romans. End quote. And I say amen to that. This kind of thinking is going around these days. People with whom you have contact. They say if you, if, if you talk about the gospel and talk about obedience to the gospel, that's works, man. You can't do that. Wrong. There's certain theologians in this very county that say that. And another great theologian, John Frame, addresses that, contends with that, contends with those theologians who happens to be a founding professor of the institution that they're in. And he wrote, entitled his book, The Escondido Theology, addressing those very things, which is a book, by the way. Douglas Moo, who's done an incredible work in Romans, wrote this. Paul called men and women to a faith that was always inseparable from obedience. For the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than who? Who? Our Lord. And to an obedience that could never be divorced from faith. For we can obey obey Jesus as Lord only when we have given ourselves to him in faith. In other words, when one is in Christ, they have the ability to obey. That's the beauty of the Spirit of God within the sinner saved by grace. And let me make it clear. This is not obedience for the sake of gain. This is not obedience for the sake of gain. This is obedience for the sake of his name. Not to obtain salvation. You can earn nothing in salvation, but to glorify his name because of salvation. Faith and obedience are joined at the hip. Amen? You will not earn favor in the sight of God. Jesus earned it all on your behalf on the cross. Obedience is an outflow, an outworking of the Spirit of God that redeems the sinner and brings him from death to what? Life. In who? Christ. 
That's the first thing that the gospel does. Second thing, we're part of a unified body that includes both Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Notice verse 5, among all the nations, and that's including you sitting here today, beloved. Among all the nations, one people, one true Israel. There is one true Israel. It's those in Christ, period, end of story. Amen? God does not have two people. He has one people. Ephesians chapter 2 declares this. Sets the record straight. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The middle wall of separation crushed in the temple courts um, of, of Jerusalem. In this day, there was a wall of separation that literally kept Gentiles away from the temple. You had the court of the Jews, the court of the women, Jewish women, and the court of the Gentiles. That wall that separates has been crushed in Christ. There's a one people of God, two becoming one. Amen? This is who you are. This is who you are. Every individual bought into this body, whether Jew, whether Gentile, are one in gospel unity. Because, the scripture says right here, you have personally been called by him. Paul, called by him. You, called by him. So, it's far more important than ethnic origin, amen? This is spiritual origin that provides an ultimate destination for every one of us. Being called to belong to Christ. You've been called. It says it right here. All back here. You've been called. This is not a call of invitation, by the way, beloved. This is a call that means to appoint. In theology, this is known as the effectual call. So when the general call goes out to the sinner and they respond in repentance and belief, it's effectual. It had an effect to where you move towards Christ because he's drawing you to him. That's the call he's talking about. He's appointed you to everlasting life through his son and the grace provided there on Calvary's cross. So, beloved, if you've responded by faith to Jesus Christ, you have heard the word proclaimed, and it is Christ himself that called you on that day. And if you're not in Christ today, and perhaps for the first time you're hearing that call, it's not me, it's him. It's Christ himself. He's the only one that saves. Calling you into a relationship with himself. So think about yourself that way. Amen? Paul does. God does. Called to belong to Christ. That's the third thing. Number four. You're designated as being loved by God. You're designated as being loved by God. Including you, verse 6, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. That includes you, called to be saints. They're loved by God. See, he's reminding them that who they are depends upon God's love and God's call. Not what you do or don't do. Not how many mistakes you made. Not the sins of your past. They're gone and they're separated as far as the east is from the west. Because I'll tell you, if you're in Christ, he will not remember your sin. Jesus bore it all. But you don't know what I did back then. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Then it doesn't matter. There might be consequences to that sin, but you'll never be judged for that sin. That's the gospel. That's what Christ paid. That's why he hung in outer darkness. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became a curse 
on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. These Romans were hated by the world, by the way. So it's reassuring for them to know that they're loved of God. Amen. See, the gospel means this is who you are now. You're beloved of God. A person loved by God the Father, a person loved by Jesus Christ the Son, called by Jesus himself. And you're also called saints. Called saints. Called to be saints. Paul uses that term 38 times in the New Testament. So, again, you know, when we use the term saint, we typically think, well, that person's a saint based on what? Behavior, thank you. Being a saint is not dependent upon behavior. Being a saint is dependent upon status, position, and union with God through Christ. That's the only way anybody's a saint. Amen? Those who've been loved and called by God, they follow after him, do they not? How can you not? Called by God, made holy for the sake and pursuit of righteousness, of holiness. Born again to be conformed into the image of Christ, created to walk in his righteousness. So the gospel changes everything that you are, everything that you believe. If it were our gospel, it would have no power, amen? Man's gospel has no power to change. God's gospel does. And he changes those that are his. And he continues to change. So maybe you had a bad day, maybe you had a bad week. You're like, dude, you don't even know, man. I... I look like an unbeliever all week. Let me tell you, if you're in Christ by grace, according to faith in him alone, oh, he'll get you where he wants you to be. Right? You trust in the union of God that you have through Christ. That's the difference. So should you pursue holiness? Should we pursue obedience? Yeah. Why? Because we can. That's the point. It's not to earn everything. It's because he earned it all. It's responsive. Notice he concludes. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, that's unmerited favor. Getting what you don't deserve. Peace, that's the very shalom of God. Grace and peace. So though we live in troublesome times, though we have troublesome lives, lives, troublesome situations, because we have peace with God through Christ, we are able to draw on him for the strength that we need to live peacefully. Amen? Grace and peace. Grace for us because he called you unconditionally. Peace for us because Jesus bore the wrath of the Father in your place. Did you get it? Did you get that? He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you will never hear these words? Depart from me, I never knew you. You can only be known by God through his son. That's grace. That's peace. So, beloved, as God has used the book of Romans so greatly over the course of church history to infiltrate the minds of his own people, I pray that in the weeks And in the months and years maybe, however long it's going to take us to go through this, I do not know. May we see our own lives transformed by the far-reaching grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. May we come to a new appreciation of what it means to be a Christian.